Hello, I'm Harris Shulikovsky, violinist, composer, and fan of cosmology. Opus Magnanimus is a project that tells the history of our universe by introducing people who made important discoveries or inventions that enable us to understand our cosmos better. Events and discoveries and the people who are associated with those events are each represented by original music which I have composed or arranged. These pieces of music and songs will eventually become a compilation which will be released to the general public, but you get to hear them first, right as they're being sketched, performed, and produced on this audio podcast. Choosing astronomical or cosmological discoveries for the next episode of Opus Magnanimous is a fun part of the process of creating this podcast for me. Looking back into human history, I proceed chronologically from ancient times and up through history, taking note of great astronomical and related discoveries and inventions. In this episode, episode 5 of Opus Magnanimous, History of the Cosmos and Music, we'll go back in history to learn a bit about Anaximander, the, quote, first true cosmologist, unquote. Of course, he didn't have a telescope in 600 BCE. But we'll then jump back into the 20th and 21st centuries, where we'll look at what we now can actually accomplish with the modern super-telescopes. We'll look at some of the recent history of telescope development as part of our ongoing outlining of the telescope timeline, which will begin to be posted very soon for you to use. Anaximander lived from 610 to 546 before the Common Era in a city in Ionia, which is now known as the country of Turkey. We think that Pythagoras was actually one of Anaximander's students or pupils. Anaximander believed in what we know or call science. He observed and tried to explain things about the universe and was interested in what the origins of things were and claimed that nature was ruled by laws just like human societies were ruled by laws. And he believed that if you disturb the balance of nature, that it would fall apart, that it wouldn't last. Like the other famous thinkers of his time, Anaximander 
also thought about philosophy and contributed to that discipline. And in astronomy, he tried to describe or to explain the mechanics of stars, of celestial bodies, relating it to the Earth. And his idea was the aperon, uh, which was the word that they used to describe the indefinite, was the source of everything. And this led to a new Greek philosophy, uh, which achieved a higher level of what they call conceptual abstraction. He also was knowledgeable in geometry, and he introduced something called the gnomon in Greece. Anaximander believed in a rational way of thinking, and so he introduced this idea of apera, which is translated as being the indefinite, or the infinite, the boundless, or the unlimited. And he thought that this apparent was what the universe came from. And it was probably an idea that grew out of the old idea of chaos, which was a formless state, uh, which came from the mythical Greek ideas. The Aperon is central to the cosmological theory created by Anaximander, whose most of his work was mostly lost, but from the few existing fragments we learn that he believed that the beginning or the ultimate reality or the arche is eternal and infinite or boundless, which is the apparent, subject to neither old age or decay, which perpetually yields fresh materials from which everything that we can perceive is derived. <clears throat> apparent generated uh, the opposites which acted on the creation of the world. So opposites meaning like hot and cold, wet and dry. Everything was, according to this philosophy, was generated from this apparent and then destroyed after that and went back to the apparent. And he believed that infinite worlds were generated from a parent, and then they're destroyed there again. Again, this reminds me a lot of the idea of, of the multiple universes, you know, sort of bubbling up and, you know, maybe multiple big bangs, you know, millions of big bangs, you know, bubbling up and then being destroyed again, and then new ones uh, coming, so it, you know it's this sort of endless process. 
so uh, he uh, was influenced by this Greek mythical tradition and his own teacher, Talis, uh, they think. Uh, so this is his search for a universal principle. The religious tradition was that there was a cosmic order, but he's trying to explain it rationally. He's trying to use this idea of natural law. So um, I'm just, it just, as I'm researching and looking things up and trying to learn more about Anaximander and his world of philosophy and science, I come across different Naturally, the first thing that you bump into is Wikipedia articles. And I just, you know, it's like, did anyone in the world ever get that excited about an entry in Wikipedia? Really? I mean, but I found two awesome Wikipedia articles in my research. And, well, I, I fell in love with this article on Anaximander. And of course, I had to drill into the meaning of this word gnomon. Okay, okay. So first of all, I just love the word gnomon. It sounds like a, a character from a Harry Potter novel or a movie, whichever is your favorite, um, right? So the gnomon. But it's even better than that. Wait, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's let's go back. Meet the guy in Aximander. Actually, we just did a little bit. And his progenitor, you know, the good word, huh? Um, uh, Pythagoras. Pythagoras supposedly said, there is geometry in the humming of the strings. There is music in the spacing of the spheres. It seems that much of what we know of Anaximander's uh, system came from a writer, Theophrastos, who seems to have been very familiar with Anaximander's writings. Theophrastos said, Anaximander of Miletos, son of Praxiades, a fellow citizen and associate of Thales, said, that the material cause and first element of things was the infinite. He being the first to introduce this name of the material cause, he says it is neither water nor any of the so-called elements, but a substance different from them which is infinite, from which rise all the heavens and the worlds within them. To me, this sounds like an approximation, perhaps, of what physicists are thinking about when they try to 
figure out what dark matter and dark energy are. So, looking at my handy Wikipedia on Anaximander, I see the author says that his use of non-mythological explanations uh, makes him very different from writers like Hesiod who came before him because it looks like philosophers around his time were trying to explain physical processes not just using mythological explanations. In other words, the deities didn't do everything uh, without some sort of physical explanation. He wrote the oldest uh, writings about the universe and the origins of life, and so he was called by many who came after him, the father of cosmology and the founder of what became astronomy. Although it seems as though he still saw celestial bodies as being like gods or deities. He had some of the more scientific ideas in mind though. He had what we would call a mechanical model of the world. He thought that the earth floated in the middle of this infinite, the Aperon, not supported by anything, just floating there. Um, not in water, like some people used to think. Uh, as he, and quoted him as saying, in the same place because of its indifference, unquote. Of course, other people like Aristotle thought that was clever, but not true. Uh, he thought that it was a cylinder, again, with a flat top surrounded by a circular ocean. Not exactly right, but the idea that it's sort of floating free without falling anywhere uh, and it doesn't need to be resting on something, was considered to be a, a revolution of thinking about cosmology. Uh, really, one of the... Uh, Karl Popper said, uh, one of the boldest, most revolutionary, and most portentous ideas in the whole history of human thinking. And so that uh, other celestial bodies could pass under the earth. So this all makes it possible for people to start developing what became Greek astronomy. Again, I'll look at this Wikipedia. Uh, at the origin, after the separation of hot and cold, a ball of flame appeared that surrounded earth like bark on a tree. This ball broke apart to form the rest of the universe. It resembled a system of hollow, concentric wheels filled with fire, with the rims pierced by holes like those of a flute. 
Consequently, the sun was the fire that one could see through a hole the same size as the earth on the farthest wheel, and an eclipse corresponded with the occlusion of that hole. The diameter of the solar wheel was 27 times that of the earth, and the lunar wheel, whose fire was less intense, was about 18 times. Its hole could change shape, thus explaining lunar phases. The stars and the planets located closer following the same model. Anaximander was the first astronomer to consider the sun as a huge mass, and so you might realize from that what the distance from the sun to the earth might be. And you might be able to present a system where celestial bodies turned at different distances. So this is clearly a beginning of an explanation of cosmological, astronomical, phenomenon. So I felt like Anaximander was certainly an interesting and important scientific mind, you might say, uh, coming quite a long time ago. And so I wanted to represent the music from around the time of Anaximander. And so I looked again online and I found a wonderful Greek music timeline in the World History Encyclopedia online. I'll give you the link to that down below. There's a really cool timeline search engine on the right side of that page. So I put in Anaximander's lifespan as my search parameters, and I pulled up these two wonderful examples. In 575 before the Common Era, the Scythian philosopher Anacharsis plays a tympanon in his celebration of the Eleusian Eleusinian mysteries. <laughs> Eleusius. Um, and uh, as accounted by Herodotus. So basically, I'm excited because here we have an example of an extremely old instrument called a tympanon, which to my ear, of course, sounds very much like the modern word timpani, which is the kettle drum used in a modern symphony orchestra. And in fact, this tympanon was similar in that it was a drum that was tunable. You could play different notes on it. You could play low notes and high notes. Uh, and they showed pictures of them dancing around with it and everything. And so in my uh, representative music that I'm going to play for you in a little while, uh, you'll hear uh, actually the sound of a modern timpani. Uh, and uh, I also found in that same uh, timeline search engine, uh, in 550 before the common era, a silver drachma, uh, which I guess was a coin of Delos, uh, 
which was the place, I suppose, where it came from, and it depicted a lyre, which, of course, is a stringed instrument. Uh, in those days, the lyre symbolized Apollo, uh, and that was on the opposite side of this coin. Let's listen to a little bit of that um, music. Now, this particular piece of music is called the Hymn to the Sun. And it was actually, I didn't write this because let's face it, I'm not a scholar of ancient Greek music. So I thought it would be better for me to just write an arrangement of a piece that was actually written and that Anaximander might have actually heard in his time, hundreds of years before the Common Era. It was written by, and we actually, now here, this is very interesting. This is one of the first pieces of music ever written where we actually know who the composer was. He was, now let me try to pronounce this right, Mesomedes, Mesomedes of Crete wrote this hymn to the sun.
So that uh, Wikipedia article that I was talking about is <clears throat> all about Pythagoras, who was a very interesting fellow. Uh, you know, a lot of these folks, uh, we don't know absolutely certain a lot of times there are just shreds of evidence or things that other people said about them uh, that were reported about these, you know, famous named people, philosophers, mathematicians, what have you. Uh, anyway, in this article that says uh, Pythagoras was given credit for many mathematical and scientific discoveries. Um, in fact, another part of the article, they basically say that that he was all into numerology, which which is really like, you know, taking numbers and and treating them as mystical objects and not really uh, looking at their scientific sort of qualities. So they credit Pythagoras with coming up with the Pythagorean theorem the Pythagorean tuning of musical notes, the five regular solids, the theory of proportions, the sphericity, the roundness of the earth, and the idea that the morning and evening stars were actually the planet Venus. Um, <clears throat> you know, supposedly he called himself a philosopher or a love of, lover of wisdom, and that he was the first person to figure out that you could divide the earth, the globe, into five climatic zones. Uh, a lot of people who study history aren't convinced that Pythagoras necessarily really did discover uh, all these concepts, but he was, he was given credit for a lot of these things, and so you know, it's kind of like other historical figures that I won't name that we give credit to for having uh, done certain things in in history. Uh, it's interesting for us to see where the origins of certain concepts or ideas. Uh, had already taken hold or were suggested by philosophical and scientific thinking by people thousands of years ago. We haven't really gotten to the point where people really were able to think scientifically to the point that things were completely, clearly, uh, decidedly factual until we were able to observe the heavens with greater and greater and greater accuracy. A lot of this grew out of the early clocks and different types of devices that people were able to design and to use, like the sundial, which was something that supposedly an ex- uh, Anaximander had something to do with. In order to make great discoveries, 
We need these more contemporary devices like telescopes or even more advanced technologies. Um, this is why I'm particularly excited about a bill that was just signed into law just a couple of days ago, the Chips and Science Act of 2022, H.R. 4346, in which the section 10823 called Next Generation of Astrophysics Great Observatories actually makes it possible for us to continue making great discoveries. Now, we've already put the budget into uh, the space telescopes that we have recently launched. Um, but <clears throat> we need to constantly, in order to resolve scientific questions that have been bothering humanity for centuries, we need to have increasingly sophisticated technologies. So this CHIPS and Science Act is a great thing because it says, and I quote, it puts forth a sense of Congress that NASA's great observatories have enabled major scientific advances, that the most recent astronomy and astrophysics decadal survey recommended studying the universe through a range of observation types that the United States and NASA are uniquely poised to lead the world in the implementation of the next generation of great observatories and that the administrator should pursue an ambitious astrophysics program that meets the scientific vision of the astronomical community and implement lessons learned from previous astrophysics missions to avoid major cost growth in flagship class missions. Also directs the administrator to continue the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope in the configuration established through critical design review and following the requirements under Section 30104 of Title 51 on cost and schedule and direct the administrator to provide quarterly reports to the appropriate committees of Congress on the telescope's progress. So this is a fantastic thing because the Congress is actually saying, you know, our our legislators are actually saying, yes, we've done great things, and yes, we also need, they're admitting the need to continue funding these great programs. I was particularly excited about this because, especially right now in episode five, I'm just going to begin really talking about how we can find our future in space with these different types of telescopes. We're going to be showing you uh, how you can look at a brief history of modern telescopes, and in future episodes, we're going to learn about the telescopes that were invented and laid the groundwork for these more advanced devices that we have now. And of course, I want to remind you about the telescope timeline which is going to be, I will be publishing that uh, 
not completely. What I'm going to do is, as we cover each new discovery, each new advance in telescope uh, invention, um, <clears throat> I'll be adding that to our historical timeline of uh, telescopes. Um, so, uh, let's see. I'm going to tell you about, uh, as a little preview of the telescope timeline, I'd like to share with you this nice history of uh, telescopes. It's published by a, um, an organization called uh, uh, Interesting Engineering, and they have published online, uh, I'll, I'll give you the link to this so you can look it all up and read it in more detail, a brief history of the telescope from 1608 to gamma rays. Uh, so this is fantastic because this is exactly what we need to be looking at in order to introduce ourselves to some of these uh, great uh, telescopes. Um, obviously, there's been great transformation. Uh, the telescope was patented, according to this article, in the 17th century. Um, uh, some of the some of the greatest minds, from Galileo Galilei to Sir Isaac Newton to the great Edwin Hubble, would all contribute over time to the development of this advanced scientific piece of equipment. Uh, and we're going to journey through time. Uh, this article explores 15 different important telescopes and their inventors. Um, and uh, so it doesn't bring us right up to the present because obviously things are constantly developing as we speak. Um, so uh, they, they speak of Hans Lippershey as the possibly the inventor of the telescope. Uh, he was the first one to patent the telescope in 1608, um, magnified an image up to three times, um, and it had a concave eyepiece lined up with another convex lens. Um, so, uh, you know, they give a whole story behind it and everything. And then, uh, you know, obviously some people, you know, said that they invented it and Galileo discovered what Lippershey had done and he improved on it. Um, and so and we'll talk more about, you know, Galileo, obviously, when we get up to that period. We're not there yet. We're still talking about 600 years before the Common Era in our historical sort of survey. But uh, we'll get there. Um, Kepler designed uh, his own telescope in 1611. Um, Huygens um, used his own DIY telescope, and he discovered the Titan, the, the, um, the moon, Titan. Um, Isaac Newton built the first reflecting telescope. Uh, Chester Hall... Um, designed a refracting telescope that solved the problem of distortion of colors. Uh, the first giant telescope was built in 1789, and in the 1800s, there were more of these huge telescopes 
um, William Parsons, uh, who died in 1867, he was the third Earl of Rossi, built uh, telescopes at his home in the Burr Castle in Ireland. Um, so th these were these giant ones. Yerkes Observatory in Wisconsin uh, in 1897 um, became the world's largest refracting telescope. Um, and uh, many really f famous astronomers used it. That's part of the the wonder is that you know a great new discovery will always attract really um, you know sort of clever-minded people. Um, the this uh, Yerkes in uh, Williams Bay, Wisconsin, uh, attracted um, Edwin Hubble, Subramanian uh, Chandra Sekhar, uh, Otto Struve, uh, Gerard Kuiper, and Carl Sagan all really famous astronomers. And then they invented the radio telescope in the 1930s um, at, a, at a Bell Telephone laboratory. Um, uh, Carl Gutajansky was given the job of trying to figure out why there was so much static interfering with radio and, t and, uh, and uh, telephone lines and so he built these uh, dipoles and reflectors and it would receive shortwave radio um, and we put it on a turntable or a merry-go-round and then he he could figure out what was thunderstorms and what was from far away what was from close in but then he discovered this faint hiss and he couldn't figure out what it was Eventually, they figured out that that was, in fact, um, evidence of the beginning of the universe, basically. Uh, so that was the what we call the background radiation, which we'll talk about more later on. Lovell's telescope uh, it was a radio telescope, and that was another a huge 250-foot diameter uh, dish radio telescope that could be aimed anywhere in the sky. Um, that was built in the, uh, in the United Kingdom. And the, you know one of the biggest and most important uh, telescopes ever was the Hubble telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope. This was an incredible idea. The idea that you would launch a telescope into space, uh, which of course meant that you could get incredibly clear pictures because nothing from your atmosphere would interfere. And then there was something called the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. Uh, that was also a space telescope. Um, and then uh, uh, it was launched in 1991 uh, by the space shuttle Atlantis. Um, and then the W.M. Keck Observatory is the world's second largest telescope. Um, and it is at near the summit, not, it's not at the very top, but near the summit of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Um, it's 13,600 feet above sea level. Um, an incredible, incredible uh, telescope. Uh, not without controversy, uh, because... Uh, the native people there, 
you know, had some issues with how things were done. Uh, we might uh, visit that issue. There was another space uh, telescope called the Herschel, the largest infrared telescope ever sent up into space. Um, it, uh, it ended operations in 2013. And of course, uh, James Webb, which I call the NGST, uh, they, they say in this article, replaces the Hubble. In fact, it doesn't really, as we've discussed before, it doesn't really replace the Hubble. It actually um, enhances or, or you know, helps uh, what they discover uh, with the Hubble telescope. So, um, so anyway, that's just a little, uh, a little overview of, of some of the greatest telescopes. Not all of them. There are many, 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 many other great discoveries. But um, <clears throat> we're going to talk uh, today a little bit about um, a, a telescope that's being built as we speak uh, called the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope. Uh, this uh, uh, Nancy Grace Roman was a really... Obviously, if you get a telescope named after you, she must have been an important scientist. Um, so she actually um, spent the first few years of her life in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, a place that I know very well, having lived there myself for a number of years. Um, but then uh, at around age 12 or so, she and her family moved. Her family moved a lot because her father was in the oil business, uh, they moved to Baltimore, Maryland. So um, that's where she finished high school and everything. Um, and uh, so Nancy Grace Roman uh, was dubbed the mother of Hubble. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But uh, in any case, the the telescope named after her is under construction. It's on track to be launched in 2026. So that's only four years from now. Um, it's going to be launched on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy. Um, it'll cost $255 million, which is... Um, oh, the, I guess that's the launch price. Anyway, it's it's... You know, this is going to be another really important telescope. And so I'd like to get to know Nancy Grace a little bit. Nancy Roman, really, that she added the grace back in the old Southern tradition. Um, let's, um, let's listen to some, a little bit of music that, uh, that kind of represents the type of things that she might have grown up with. Baltimore, Maryland is a city of incredible cultural richness. Uh, it has always been a city that uh, had a really strong um, music, uh, which of course is what interests me as a musician. <laughs> and um, they have, of course, they have the, the traditional, the classical music, which is what I'm trained in, the, the operas, the symphonies, uh, the ballet, what have you. Uh, 
but they also have a, a, a long tradition because huge numbers of uh, freed black people after the end of slavery uh, came and moved into Baltimore. So they have an incredibly strong African-American uh, music tradition. Uh, hence, um, the type of thing, one of the children of Baltimore was Yubi Blake. Uh, he wrote uh, some of his music in the style of ragtime. Um, I'm going to put a little bit of uh, one of our favorite Scott Joplin rags, uh, just to show you a little bit of the flavor of what uh, she may have grown up listening to. So Nancy Grace Roman, a.k.a. Nancy Roman, born in 1925, passed away in 2018. She was an astronomer known as, as we said, the mother of Hubble. She was NASA's first chief astronomer in a time when women were discouraged from studying math and science. Roman became a research astronomer and she was instrumental in taking NASA's Hubble Space Telescope from an idea to a reality and establishing NASA's program of space-based astronomical observatories. Nancy Roman's mother, who by the way was a music teacher, that's about all I could find out about her. I don't know what she taught in music, what instrument, or if she taught in a public school or whatever, but she was a music teacher of some kind, and uh, she used to take Nancy on walks, and they'd look at the you know, birds and trees, and, and they would also look up in the sky at, at night at the constellation. Uh, so she had decided already by the time she was in seventh grade to become an astronomer. Um, she got a, a doctorate in astronomy from University of Chicago in 1949. About 10 years later, she started working at NASA and she was the first woman to hold an executive position at the space agency. So she had always been interested, according to her interview, the last interview that she had before she passed away, in constellations and the northern lights. She organized her friends into an astronomy club. In seventh grade, astronomer, 
Nancy Grace Roman was actually in the University of Chicago's magazine. This, uh, I'll give you the URL for this one too. It's really good. Uh, their science magazine uh, portion. She didn't. She's told uh, the interviewer that she did not have much of a soft spot for the University of Chicago. Um, she um, had her father Irwin was a geophysicist um, so you know he she says he taught me mental arithmetic by playing games with me uh, introduced her to scientific concepts and skills woodworking and household mechanics um, she went to Swarthmore uh, which had a good astronomy department. It was close to Baltimore and it was co-ed. Uh, so, um, yeah, there were all kinds of restrictions regarding women in different colleges. Um, but in any case, um, according to Roman, uh, Swarthmore's dean of women during her undergraduate years encouraged women to pursue what she deemed female-appropriate fields. Quote, if you insisted on majoring in science or engineering, she wouldn't have anything more to do with you, said Roman. So she sent me to the head of the astronomy department, Peter Van de Kamp. He wasn't very encouraging to her. Um, she wasn't sure if it had anything to do with gender because... There weren't many men starting college because they were all going off to war. It was World War II. Uh, but uh, Van de Kamp studied astrometry, uh, the measurement of positions and motions and magnitudes of stars. And um, he was using... Uh, it was interesting that her description... He told uh, Nancy Roman that he was using materials collected by his predecessors 50 years before, collecting materials to be used by his successors 50 years in the future. So basically, he was saying, you know, you might not live to see the results of your, of your uh, study. It's a very slow subject. But, you know, she wanted to do this anyway. Um she uh, um, did her thesis uh, in Chicago on uh, Ursa Major Cluster, which is the central part of the Big Dipper, which is, it's the Big Dipper is part of Ursa Major, the Great Bear. Star clusters uh, are formed in uh, compact areas of dense gas and dust clouds, and as they, the clusters age, the stars have different velocities. Roman explains they expand like water evaporates into air, stars evaporate into space. So um, these stars could be found all over the sky from the same cluster. She wanted in her project to look for stars that were born with the stars in the Big Dipper using information that already existed. Um, 
so she could kind of go backwards in time. She said, I could tell how stars were moving now and could reverse that motion, taking them back to the Dipper at about the right time. She found more than 200 stars that had been born in the Ursa Major Cluster. Uh, she stayed on uh, in Chicago after she um, got her doctorate. Um, and she taught and everything. Um, so uh, she was very proud of the work that she did because it helped to uh, advance the understanding of the actual structure of the Milky Way. But unfortunately, uh, she made such a small amount of money that her parents actually had to help her with money. When she left the University of Chicago, joined the government, she was hired, uh, as the article says, as a freshly graduated PhD, despite, despite having six years of experience and an international reputation. She said, my salary was so low that they didn't recognize it as a professional experience. Roman estimates she was making no more than 60% of what her male colleagues earned based on salaries offered for comparable positions at peer institutions invariably filled by men. The only woman faculty member in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at that time, Roman had no other women's salaries to even compare with her own. When she brought her concerns to the department chair, Subramanian Chandra Sekhar, the Indian-born astrophysicist who went on to win a Nobel Prize, he told her, quote, listen to this now, we don't discriminate against women, we can just get them for less, unquote. I would have thought he'd understand discrimination, says Roman. Peter Va uh, Vandervoort, who uh, is an astrophysics uh, professor emeritus uh, and, the, as they say, the de facto departmental historian uh, and a mentee of uh, Chandra Sekhar, confirms that Chandra, as many people called him, did, in fact, experience his fair share of discrimination. Um, so... Uh, So, yeah, it was a lot of uh, discrimination. I encourage you to read the rest of this excellent article um, about her. Uh, there's some really fun stuff in here. Uh, Roman, as the mother of Hubble, I was sort of embarrassed about that name. Um, Physicist and astronomer Lyman Spitzer Jr. was considered the father of Hubble, but Roman, who was chief of astronomy and NASA's first women to hold an executive position, was equally responsible for bringing the Hubble Space Telescope to fruition. So at a meeting uh, right after they launched it in April of 1990, Edward J. Weiler, who was a former student of Spitzer's and a Hubble chief scientist at the time, bestowed the name on Roman of the mother of Hubble. So, um, Hubble has beamed back thousands of images uh, that are fantastic. Um, the uh, One of the interesting things that I've noticed uh, recently in my uh, reading about the different telescopes is that uh, Hubble, although it 
it's very advanced for a time for its time um, uh, took uh, for some of the images that they created um, uh, five six weeks or so to to process these images whereas the NGST these images are processed within a few days so in our next episode we'll keep actually uh, talk a little bit more about what the Nancy Grace Roman telescope will be able to accomplish um, and um, also uh, we'll we'll look at the the new International Liquid Mirror Telescope and uh, start really constructing our telescope timeline, which I'm very excited about. And of course, moving on to the next period of, of, of history uh, so that we can discover um, more about how people in the past thought about the sky and the things that are in it and where everything came from. Remember, we can always use your assistance to help us produce not only this podcast, but also to uh, re-record the music to hire uh, live musicians um, and uh, to uh, enable us to increase the quality of this um podcast and its associated productions check out our different youtubes uh i'll be showing a little bit about how i create the music some of the technology uh the software the sample libraries uh the electric uh violin and its associated um effects that i use um and uh, a little bit even about the acoustic instruments that i use in order to um, create the music for this uh, podcast and for the eventual uh, final recordings of Opus Magnanimus. Join us in two weeks and uh, keep on uh, looking up, I guess, like Carl Sagan used to say. Um, seriously, we'll see you in space.